Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tenum Coaching Academy, Skipping Agile Coaching Non-Denominational Podcast. And we are Shuri Silas and Alex Kudnov, your hosts today. And today we have Jeff Watts, who is joining us from UK. Yep. And uh, Jeff is uh, very well known in Agile community. I don't need to introduce him. Uh, so, Jeff, I'll give you kind of the reins to introduce yourself. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah, so um, I think probably most people are aware of me from, from the Agile space. Um, I've written a few books, uh, like Scrum Mastery and Product Mastery and things. Um, but before I was even involved in the Agile space, I was a professional coach. And I just, I've always had those two worlds going on simultaneously. So I kind of describe my, uh, describe my career as a bit of a Venn diagram, if you like. I've got my Agile space, I've got my professional coaching space, and then there's, there's quite a bit of an overlap where... They, they, those two worlds meet, uh, and that for me is is the, the really interesting area. Hmm. So, and I know we talked about topic, and now I want to completely drop that topic and go to how the heck did you move from professional coaching to agile coaching? What happened? So, I mean, it's probably not as exciting as, or as interesting as you think it is, but it was just the case of being in the right place at the right time, I suppose, or the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on your perspective. But when I, when I joined my first company after university, I was on a graduate scheme, and part of that graduate scheme, you were invited to see lots of different parts of the business, uh, uh, and also provided lots of different training courses. So I was, I was invited to do things like interviewing skills and things. And one of the things that, that I could choose was coaching, and it was something that grabbed my attention. And it was something that the company I was at had a big uh, sort of investment and belief in. So right from going through, I got professional coaching qualifications very early on. And I was part of this internal coaching program where anybody in the organization could request a coach. And, you know, I could be coaching anybody from a, from a director to a, to a new graduate. And it was brilliant. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I, I then followed that up with some um, what you might call night school or what we call here uh, open university qualifications. So another degree. Um, that was done in my own spare time in, in, in coaching. And so that, that just started and, and went, and it was a big part of how I was a manager and a leader, I, I believe. And then my day job, as it were, what I was actually being paid to do, most of my nine-to-five work was a um, project manager, but I was a project manager for a technical team, and I didn't have any kind of technical skills. So I kind of had to trust my team. Um, and, you know, I, I worked at a telecoms company for seven years and I still don't know how a telephone works, let alone the cloud or any of the other you know, IPTV or anything stuff that they do. So I, I had no technical skills. I really was there to facilitate the clever people. And that sort of led me to, to this Scrum Master thing that was coming out of the US at the time. Uh, managed to wangle my way onto, um, onto one of the first Scrum Master courses in Boston with Ken. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, we got a new CIO who came from the States and said, yeah, as a company, we need to do Agile or we die. Well, apparently someone's got a CSM. Right, Jeff, you need to go start helping all these teams do Agile. So that's how that started. All right. And you got them do Agile. And as you, said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, as you were storing that, how did your professional coaching and kind of training and experience help you to get a kind of foothold in the Agile world? Um, so the Scrum Master side of things was, was where I started. You know, that's, I, I, even though my title said project manager, I didn't really manage anything. Um, so my, my coaching skills 
were, seemed like a natural fit to the way that I was playing that role, if you like, within the teams. And then when it came to helping others do Agile or roll out Agile or whatever the other terms they had, again, I had I was quite young um, at the time. I had no, I hadn't been in the company. This was a company that people generally joined at 16 and stayed there until they retired. So people had been there 20, 30, 40 years at the time. Um, so they weren't going to listen to me telling them they needed to do a different way of working. I had no authority, formal or informal. Um, so the only way that I could really kind of get anybody interested in doing something different was was by genuinely listening to their concerns, their pain points. And that those kinds of skills just, I think, helped me connect to people from completely different parts of the organization, completely different roles without having the domain knowledge. Um, so that looking back, I think that's what helped. Sounds like you organically learned the best way to handle agile coaching. <laughs> well, I'm probably filtering out all of my terrible mistakes. <laughs> so then as we look at this concept of player-led um, coaching, yeah. how does that tie in? Well, no, and that's probably a good point, actually, because um, I was if – if I, I glossed over, you know, a good 15 years' worth of growth there in a minute so there were there were times when i was trying to trying to get people working with a new way of working trying to to tackle the status quo challenge really quite strongly held and and deeply ingrained cultural habits and behaviors um and i was very keen and enthusiastic and you know naive you might say uh, and so um, there were times I said, do you know what, this is, this is a no-brainer. What, why aren't you doing this? You know, let, just trust me on this. I've seen it. It works. Come along with me. Um, and sort of trying to push people into the shoe state of just listening to me rather than get them to pull me into that, into that state. Um, and it took quite a few, uh, well, it was a combination of trial and error, but also a bit of self-confidence and trusting the process. So um, I guess there was an element of, I can, I can remember actually I was doing a talk at um, one of the scrum gatherings a few years ago. It was on mindful approach to product ownership. And someone in the audience asked me a question, said, how has your, your approach changed over the years? And just completely off the cuff, it wasn't scripted. They said, I care less. And, and, and they, they kind of misinterpreted it as a slightly frivolous comment. And what I meant by that was I'm less attached to the outcome than I used to be. You know, I really wanted people to get to this this great place in terms of process and working and you know, efficacy and um, just general, what I would call it, a, a more humane way of working. I could see that and I wanted them to get there really, really quickly. I was a very impatient type A person. Um, but I realised that the, the, the more patient I was, the quicker they got there. But it took a lot of time to, to realise that I needed to let go of pushing them and just let them go at their own pace if you like mm-hmm. and that, that player-led coaching that you mentioned was a big it was it was something that just really really reinforced it for me when I wasn't really looking at it if, if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah, I really wasn't expecting that from a sports perspective yeah you know it's interesting how close adult coaching and professional coaching are because there's this thread here around 
get your eye off of the goal. Like the goal of professional coaching isn't to get to the, the three steps you're going to take away. It's it's learning and growing in the process where so you'll be able to do that. And it sounds like you've discovered that same thing in that adult coaching space. If you let go of trying to push at the goal, you can actually get more learning, which will bring them closer to the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a funny, we're a funny species, I think. I mean, we're, we're a fantastic species, but we are very, very hard. Um, and I mean, one example of that is no matter how good for you, genuinely good for you, an idea is if I'm telling you, you need to do that, you will resist it. Even if it's the best thing that could possibly be for you. Simply because it's it's challenging your autonomy, and you, know, you don't want it to be my idea. You want to come with it. So, letting go of this is what I think you should do, and and get, becoming less attached to that was was a big thing for me. But if I'm looking back and you know putting myself in that position again, I can give myself a little bit of um, what's the word sort of leeway, if you like, um, sort of justification because. My job was agile coach, and this idea of well, I'm there to help this company become more agile. I'm there to help this team become more agile. So if I'm not helping them become more agile, I'm not doing my job. That wasn't necessarily a conscious or an explicit thing that I was saying to myself, but it was it was part of my script as my role, and I think it was part of other people's expectations as well. And probably, you know, we didn't really do. I think the one thing that that I've been talking a lot. Well, probably the, the biggest topic that I talk to, to teams, and not just agile teams, leadership teams, um, over the last few years has been effectively contracting. I probably wouldn't call it contracting, but you know, what, what are our mutual expectations of one another that, that is really, really important in the professional coaching space? But probably something that's glossed over or not even really considered to be that important in the agile coaching space. But what is this team expecting of you as an agile coach? What do they want from you as an agile coach? What are they ready for from you as an agile coach? And what are you looking for from them? And having that, that conversation is something. Even, even between um, you know, a, a development team and a product owner, that, that kind of expectation doesn't really happen. But one development team and one product owner is very different to another development team and a product owner, depending on what they're, they're ready for, in terms of that balance of collaboration, that balance of you know, mutual uh, sort of togetherness. So it's kind of co-designing the change and getting the team and coach agree on what the expectations are. And kind of pulling a little bit back on what you said, you said interestingly, like, don't tell people what to do. And what popped in my mind, specifically, don't, don't tell people what not to do. Mm. And I sometimes do the experiment with the students. I'm going to tell you something not to do and tell me what popped up in your mind. Don't think about pink elephant. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, oh, that was a beautiful pink elephant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and if an agile coach or scrum master doesn't focus on, on the outcome, somebody needs to focus on the outcome. That's kind of what the company is for there. So how do you, as an agile coach, go about focusing somebody else on outcome or helping them to focus there? Well, so what I, I think what I use here is this, this phrase that I probably didn't really appreciate when I first heard it, which is trust the process. I think I just sort of 
let it wash over me. Um, but I think the the assumption here, or the, the, the working assumption here, the working model is that the coaching approach is the way to to achieve autonomy and to achieve engagement and to achieve creativity and to to enable an iterative incremental approach in a complex environment. I think that is that's the assumption, the hypothesis that if philosophically we can agree with and you know we can work through logically and rationally, then we can say, okay, so it's not about telling people what to do. I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the answers, and even if I did, we need autonomy, we need engagement, we can't have that time lag of going up and down the, the escalation chain. So it's got to be around creating autonomous teams. It's got to be around enabling creative teams. And the, only, the best way to do that, it's been proven over a long period of time, is, is through more coaching approach and more enabling approach. So that's the working assumption. If I, if I believe that, then I don't need to worry so much about the outcome. My focus has got to be on the process. Because if I focus on the process, I'm not, I'm not talking about the scrum process here, or the agile process, I'm talking about the coaching process, the enabling process, then the outcome will take care of itself. That's, that's the assumption that I, I think it took me a long time to, to get my head around, given my impatient nature, my type A behaviours, and all these different perfectionist tendencies, and all these different tests of my people pleasing, all these things that, that really inhibit me being my best. Um, it took me a long time to, to, to trust the process. And say, well, I'm just going to let go of the outcome, because I'm sure if we get this right, the outcome, whatever it is, will take care of itself. So I didn't need one person to focus on it, because I implicitly believe that people are good when everything is in and everything is equal. Everybody wants to do a good job. Everybody wants to be successful. So I'm just going to get rid of all the things that are going to stop them naturally doing their best. So <clears throat> help me kind of understand this contradiction. So I will go back to Scrum, and okay. Scrum Scrum Master facilitates events when asked or wherever needed, right? So, and in facilitation, we know that professional coaching and facilitation are really, really close, right? The skills are pretty much the same, with an exception that facilitator calls an agenda and drives an agenda, right? So, and how does this kind of scrum guide thing and scrum masters hold it as a Bible? I need to be facilitator. I need to kind of hold the agenda and drive the agenda. How does that jive with what you're talking about, uh, agile coaching? Well, I think that's just a natural, that's a natural state of progression. It's a natural state of growth. It's like the shuhari of the scrum master, but they're going through and they're using the scrum guide as their, as their teacher, if you like. So, you know, they're Mr. Miyagi the scrum guide. But if they've got an agile coach with them or they've got their own coach or they're doing their own reflection or even just reflecting with the team themselves on what are you expecting from me and how am I serving you well as a scrum master and where can I improve, then they will gradually start to let go of the more of the formalities, the safety nets, as their personal insecurities start to lessen. They become more comfortable with themselves, more comfortable with the process, more comfortable with those that they're working with. They don't need the, the, the formality of the, the guide as much. And so they start looking at the principles behind the practices. And then, as I've, I've sort of been called a bit of a heretic in the past, effectively you know, getting past Scrum. And we don't need any of that kind of framework anymore because you know, we, we've just got a good way of working together and constantly reflecting and inspecting and adapting collectively. We don't need that kind of framework anymore. We're past that. Awesome. So when we, when we look at Agile coaching, we can kind of we can compare that to ICF coaching, 
And I've also heard people compare it to sports coaching. Mm-hmm. Like, it's completely different. Sports coaching is you come in there and you whip them into shape and you tell them what to do. Um, but you were telling us a story about a different experience you had. Would you mind sharing some of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was um, it was amazing. I, I, so I think sports coaching does get a bit of a bad rep. And I think it's it's changed over the years. But it's also, I think, partly down to TV. So, you know, TV editing, the things you see on TV, that, what makes good TV is a coach shouting at their players or whatever. That, kind of, that makes great TV. The little soft conversations or you know, the reflective conversations, one-on-one or in the changing rooms or whatever, that, that doesn't really make great TV. Um, so you don't really see that. So I still think there has always been a lot of that. But my, my personal experience, which I think is, is pretty pretty common to other people my age in, in my culture and I don't think it's that dissimilar to, to others as well is that historically the, a sports coach has been seen as, as the expert they've been seen as the, the owner of the technique if you like they, they know what good is either because they, they, they've achieved well uh, in that sport uh, you know or they've studied strongly and they've got a lot of data to, to back it up um, and so I, I, I got uh, I, I, I fell into cricket coaching and I don't necessarily want to you know, bore people with the intricacies of, of, of a very quaint, um, idiosyncratic English sport. Um, but the principles of it, I think, span all sorts of sport and very much match up to what I've read about Phil Jackson in, in basketball as well. But what I, I'm absolutely blown away, because when I was a kid, you know, I was, I was coached in this sport of cricket and I was told how to position my body to play each particular shot or deliver a particular delivery. Um, I was told what was right and I was told what was wrong and I was given feedback and there was effectively a textbook way of doing it. And literally, you could be given a textbook for how to play your shot and how your body should be positioned. And, and it was done with good intention, right? It was, it was drawn up with hundreds of years of data points studying the most successful people. But it was a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like, that you, know, you would only get so far if you followed the textbook. Which it kind of worked for a while, but slowly but surely, England, which was the country that invented the, the game, were slowly and surely getting worse and worse to a point where they were the laughing stock of international cricket. Um, but they, they they were having what I refer to as technical successes, you know, projects that came in on time but your customers didn't want them because you hadn't responded. All of the other countries in the world had basically thrown the, the textbook out the window and said, right, your, your objective is this. So, however you want to achieve it, within the rules of the game, just go for it. Okay? And my, my job as a coach is to make sure that you're not going to do yourself an injury or, you know, uh, do yourself a disservice or um, break the rules of the game. So, I'm going to, and I was, went on this course and the first thing they asked us was, what's your number one objective of the training session? And I wasn't the only person. We all pretty much unanimously said the objective of training is to get better. And, and the people who are rolling out this coaching across the whole of England saying, we don't want that to be your number one objective. We want your number one objective to be that the kids want to come back next week. And, and I said, so technically they could get worse and we'd still be successful as coaches. Which seemed weird to me. They said, yeah, because, okay, they might get worse, but next week if they come back, they can get better. But if they don't come back, they'll never get better. Which, all right, I could buy that logic. Um, and the next sort of mind-blowing thing was, so uh, we don't, they, they didn't want us to decide what they should be being taught 
they wanted the children themselves to decide what they should be being taught. And these are 10, 11 year old kids. Um, so the, we, were, we were taught as coaches to ask the children, so what do you want to get better at this week? And then they would decide. Ideally, based on their reflection from the previous match, and they would do some self-analysis and say, okay, we want to get better at catching or hitting or something. And once we'd been told what we want to get better at, our job was then to craft a training session that they would enjoy so much they wanted to come back next week, priority one, and maybe get better, but not at the technique, at the objective. So we didn't want to coach talent out of people. That was the phrase they gave us. Don't coach talent out of people. Let talent express itself. Um, which I thought was mind-blowing from a sports perspective where I was I had a completely different experience. So that definitely is not going to make the primetime TV. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, you, 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 you let them choose what? So, and if we take that experience into corporate world, right, and an agile coach, a scrum master comes in and like, yeah, you will get worse before you get better, but keep, keep coming back and keep doing this. So uh, a big impediment to that I see is the leadership who is measured by milestones, by delivery goals, by deadlines and all that. So how do you coach leadership to understand that who is focused on something else than what your goals there are. So the good, the good news is that leaders, I know they don't feel like it sometimes, but leaders are also human. And this is what I tell myself, all right? Because it's good news because they would have gone through exactly the same kind of human process, all right? That human process of having to learn and going through that conscious incompetence. The, the one question, the one question that I think is really important the leadership to ask themselves is what's my view of human nature because if I have a positive view of human nature people are generally good all things being equal people generally want to do a good job they like to please they want to be successful and given the choice of getting better or worse most people choose getting better all right if I believe that fundamentally not just saying it if I actually believe that then I'm much more comfortable with this idea of letting people learn how they want to learn and what they want to learn. Because I know, ultimately, they're doing what they are, what they think they need to do to get better. Mm. All right? If, however, I have a negative view of human nature, people are only out for themselves, all right? they just want to do the bare minimum, they're here to get, take, take, take what they can. If I give them an inch, they'll take a mile. If I have that view of human nature, and I'm not going to be comfortable with that. Right. And that's, for me, the one question that we need to ask. If I have that positive view of human nature, the rest of the conversation is easy because they've gone through the same thing. Right. If they haven't, then it's this, this whole coaching thing, this whole agile thing, is never going to work with them. So, and I get that. And I have a pretty good assumption what your view on human nature is. And then you come to the organization and you run into 
managers who got into their uh, position, like first line manager, for example, through the halo effect. You were a great software developer. Now you're going to be a great team lead or a great development manager. And you run into a completely opposite view that, you know, humans are not natural, creative, resourceful, and whole. They're broken, and my job is to fix them and in the process to deliver all the stuff that I need to deliver. How do you coach that? Um, so it's we have we don't really call it the halo effect. We call it the Peter principle. People are eventually promoted outside their, their capability level. Um, I think again for me, there's this this view of where would I rather be wrong? Um, would I rather if I'm going to be wrong? Would I rather have trusted someone and been proven to be wrong, or not trusted someone who could have been trusted? Um, and the good thing about trust, the good thing about um, this this hypothesis of human nature, is that it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be absolute, right? So I can trust you a small amount, and then I can see whether you're worthy of that trust. And then, if you are, I could trust you some more. We can use the iterative incremental nature of an agile approach, not just to our product development, but also to our relationship development. And I think if you really think about it, we do that anyway, right? Um, what's been slightly different for me recently is actually looking back at part of this, uh, our script, our sort of personal life script around trust. And I was certainly taught this. I can't remember being, I can't remember anybody actually verbalizing these words to me, but it, it was, it was, in, it was, in, it's an impression that was, that was formed. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and it's a similar kind of thing. People should earn your trust. That, that was a message that was part of my script from a young age. And I get that, right? Because you don't want to be taken advantage of. Right? I get that. But there's, you know, I, had a, I had a course, oh, a long, long time ago now, at a company, and we were talking about this idea of self-organizing teams and trust and uh, job and things. And, and one person in the room said, you see, you're too naive, Jeff, all right? You're young, you're naive, you're, you're, you're a tree hugger. You missed the point, all right? People are lazy. Uh, and he said it with conviction. And he wasn't just saying it for an argument. He genuinely believed that you could tell that he had experience about himself. And he said, people are lazy. You can't go around giving lazy people freedom and autonomy. They need, they want to be managed, Jeff. All right? People don't want autonomy. They want to be told what to do. They need to be told what to do. Uh, and I was taken back. But thankfully, I didn't need to respond um, because somebody else in the room did. Somebody else from the same company said, well, that's interesting because, you know, I, my people are pretty good. So maybe you're hiring badly. And we had this sort of discussion amongst the group about ultimately you know, whether people live up to or down to your expectations of them. If, you, if people know that you don't trust them, then why are they going to, what incentive do they have to go out there and prove themselves? Because they know you don't really trust them anyway. So they're just going to do the bare minimum, which then reinforces your view that they're not trustworthy. They're going to do the bare minimum. It's a sort of negative reinforcing cycle. Uh, whereas this other person's colleagues kind of just assumed they were going to do a good job, you know, they seemed pretty good in the interview, uh, gave them a chance, they seemed to be pretty good, so I just let them, let, let them go, and it just got better. 
And that was a sort of positive reinforcing cycle. But it does take a certain element of vulnerability and courage to take that first step. So going all the way back to what I was saying about, well, do people need to earn your trust? Well, yeah, they kind of do, all right? But if you start with trust, then you have a much better chance of people earning your trust. So it's not a case of, I've just met you. I don't trust you until you prove yourself. It's, I've met you. I trust you to a degree, unless you prove otherwise. All right? And the more we work together, the more that trust will grow. And that tends to lead to a more positive and, and rapid growth of trust. Yeah, so as agile coaches, you know, people assume we have an agenda, which I guess in some ways we do, right? We've got this agenda to help you um, change your company to more agile ways of being. Oh, come on. I thought our agenda was to transform. Oh, I hate that word. Let's <laughs> stop. <laughs> so, um, what I hear, the question I hear coaches ask me all the time is about, well, how do you deal with resistance? You know, we're there, we're trying to do our thing, and we butt up against this resistance. How do you deal with it? So, what about you? Um, well, I think resistance is a funny thing. So, I sort of already mentioned that if, if I feel some my autonomy is being threatened, then I will resist, because autonomy is one of our fundamental drivers as a human being um, but the other funny thing that I found about resistance is that actually we kind of get what we look for, we see what we look for and we're kind of expecting resistance and so any behaviour that could potentially resemble resistance we tend to label as res resistance when actually it's, it's kind of a, a natural response whether that's um, they're feeling threatened, their status is feeling threatened, they don't understand where the value is coming from they don't understand the purpose of it. They're worried about you know, whether this is real, how they can contribute, stepping in. So they can, there's a number of different fears associated with any kind of change of working. Um, and the longer you've been doing something, the more attached we are to that and, and the less comfortable we are with, with change. So I, I generally look at something and really try and when I find myself labeling something as resistance, I, I consciously try and uh, reframe it. Well, if I'm seeing that as resistance, but why might it not be? I think that's that's quite helpful because I can remember one uh, one person uh, who really sort of flicked this switch for me, and it was back back in my first job. And he was I would have la I would have labelled him at the time as the most resistant, disruptive, negative, cynical person about agile that I'd ever come across. Now this was relatively early on in my career, so I didn't have a massive sample size, but still. Yeah, every time you said something, you'd be, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, that's not how it works around here. If you don't get this, this isn't going to work here because, right? You had all the, all the comebacks, all the questions. And it was just one of those where I thought, oh, no, he's going to be there again in this meeting. Oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. Right? And it was, I was preparing my arguments for his counter-arguments before I went. It was that kind of level. But at some point, we just had a chat outside, you know, in the good old days when you could actually have a coffee together or something like that, go to the pub or something. Um, and we had a bit of a chat. And he said to me, Jeff, you must hate me. I said, I don't hate you. Right? There are very few people in the world that I would ever consider using the word hate against. I don't hate you. Um, you you're difficult. All right, I'll grant you that. But I don't hate you. But why do you think I hate you? Because, you know, I know what I'm like. Right? I know I'm really 
I question a lot. I know I'm, you know, but I really need to understand something before I buy into it. And you and a couple of other people have, have just constantly answered my questions and you know, given me insurances here, but also been honest where there aren't insurances and told me how I need to get get used to that and sort of grow up a little bit. Um, and do you know what? I'm with you. I'm I'm on board now. I needed to go through that process of really pulling that idea apart and you helped me do it and I'm with you. And he then turned into one of the biggest evangelists I've ever seen. And for me, that just reminds me that what looked like resistance was just him rationalising, was just him working through all his concerns, all his fears, all of, and he was a really great person to have on your team because you wouldn't, you know, find out all the risks, you would have the black hat of doing that. But you play that role for the service of the team. Um, that's a bit of a waffly answer, but I think just reminding yourself that what looks like resistance usually isn't. I don't think it was any waffling. And what it brought up for me, like when you talked about resistance and autonomy, the instantaneously the scarf model popped on in my head. And what you're thinking about, like how you either building people up or tear them down on those kind of dimensions, certainty, uh, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, right? So, um, yeah. And so I'm wondering, so if you do that and if you kind of survive with the organization and middle management doesn't kick you out because you're not focusing on the goals and outcomes, how do, how do you know it, it's working? How do you measure the progress and maybe progress in the right direction. I think that's always the, the biggest challenge, isn't it? You know, we had um, to our CIO who came in and said, you need to be agile, the company's going to die. Jeff, you've got CSM, go and coach these teams, do agile. He, um, for all the good that he did, he did a lot of good. There were a lot of things that, you know, in hindsight, he probably um, wished he hadn't. I don't have his word for this, but uh, there were times when you think, yeah. And one of the things he did was he set a target for being 100% agile. Um, and and <laughs> committed that to the stock market. And because he'd made that commitment, of course, he had to meet that target. So there was a time when he declared we had achieved that target to the stock market. Yet I knew half the company hadn't even heard of Agile. Um, so metrics can be really, really damaging. It's tempting, right? It's te and it, and all, again, all those things came with uh, good intentions, right? He wasn't doing that to, for ulterior motive. He wanted to help you know, encourage progress and help us sort of track things. But it led to all sorts of things like, so retrospectives are Agile. So the more retrospectives you have, the more Agile you are. So let's have a retrospective every week. That, that kind of behavior came from the metrics. Um, so how do you know? Well, I'm not afraid to, to use a little bit more, um, I suppose you might call rough and ready gut feel metrics. Do things feel better? What kind of stories are we telling about how this company is, is working? You know, what's, what's, a, what's a good story for how things work here? And what's a typical story of failure compared to a year ago, two years ago? What's the sort of gut feel for how, what the ratio is of successful stories and failure stories? And you know, what, what does failure mean for us now? These types of metrics. But, you know, I, I'm not averse to using um, some, some kind of 
visualization tools. You know, something that, that I, I spent a lot of time with uh, Dave Snowden and Andrea Tomasini creating was a visualization of the organizational culture. So using SenseMaker to, to actually capture data points around real stories of our organizational culture that we can use to graphically represent how much our culture has changed over time in real time. I think that's a really good indicator. But I would also be just asking people to say, how, how do we think we are? Whatever, I've, I've seen teams use all sorts of metrics and all of them have potential to be really, really valuable, but all of them have the potential to be really, really terrible. Um, so as long as you're holding them loosely, you know, I think even looking at agile principles for a while or agile or even scrum values or anything can be useful as long as it's not held too tightly. Because as soon as a metric becomes a target, then it's useless, right? Yeah. So I'm going to go back just a little bit. Um, you were talking about, um, when you were talking about resistance and seeing people, like, what do you believe about what they're, what they're saying? Um, to me, that ties back to the question now of supervision. And I know that in professional coaching, supervision super, super helpful. Um, in fact, you were the one who introduced me to it vicariously through one of your books. Um, and I think I have some thoughts around agile coaches and their need for supervision. I'd, I'd like to hear what some of your thoughts are on that. Um, I think it's I think it's really important. I mean, my my biggest so when you when you came across the coaches case, but my biggest um, uh, my, my number one priority at, at that time was to try and bring more of the professional coaching world into the world of agile coaching, and you know I think that's. That's that's definitely definitely getting there, and all the work that you're doing is, is really driving that forward. So thank you for that. Um, in terms of supervision, I think coaching's still got a long way to go in regards to supervision. To be perfectly honest with you, um, so I, you know, I'm a member of the ICF, and part of my accreditation requires me to do some some mentor coaching, but it doesn't require me to do supervision. Um, I I choose to because I think it's valuable, um, and but I so you know I would say. The vast majority of people who have the word coach in their job title, I would say, aren't even part of a professional coaching body. And if the professional coaching bodies don't mandate supervision, then um, the people who aren't part of the professional bodies are highly unlikely to be doing that anyway. So it's still got a long way to go, even in the coaching world, I would say, but at least it's moving in the right direction. So the agile coaching world, it's, 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 you know, it's going to be a couple of steps behind it's always going to be a couple of steps behind because it's looking for the good practice and best practice from the, the professional coaching world. That kind of makes sense. Um, so is it important? Yes. Do I see a lot of it? No. Do I see a lot of potential for it? Yes. So I see a lot of informal supervision. So I see a lot of sort of scrum master communities of practice, for example, which are which can be pseudo supervision for scrum masters within an organisation. Agile coaching communities of practice, which, which are often the opportunity for that. Coaching circles these kinds of sort of informal coaching supervision opportunities. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that I've been working on recently is, is, a, is a form of that, which is a, just a small private community. Because we have, there's so many people out there that have experience and can share experience, but it's quite it's scary, might not be the right word, but it's, it's probably not a safe environment. You know, you, you talk about forums and, Twitter and, and social media, it's not safe 
to be vulnerable. It's not safe to offer advice. And generally, it's an opportunity for people to, to, to flout their ego and, and try and score points. So it's not a great place for supervision, even though it has the potential to be a great place. It's just never going to be that safe place. So you know, my experiment at the start of this year was to create a small community of people from around the world who just want to support each other, get better, share experiences in a, in a closed environment, um, to, to offer that sort of formal and informal supervision. Um, and I think that you're probably going to see a lot more of that going forward inside organisations, but also across organisations, because it's so easy to just get a very blinkered view of how agile coaching works in our organisation. Um, and if you get those different experiences in different places, you can learn from other people. I always say, if you get the chance, learn from other people's mistakes before you learn from your own. I mean, absolutely learn from your own. But if you can learn from other people's mistakes, it saves you a little bit of pain. So it's kind of interesting. One of the scrum values is openness, and then we create these closed groups to create safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's that, again, these values aren't really absolute, right? They're, they're, they're contextual. So within the group, there's openness, but you need a certain level of closeness to have enough safety to be open. And that's, that's a balance that all teams have to strike, all organizations need to strike. You know, and eventually, with the, as you grow the trust, as you grow the safety, as you grow the, you know, the, the, the working agreements, the expectations of one another, the, the customs, then you can expand that, and that grows from one team into, into a, across the organization and so on. And so, Jeff, um, I hear you had a good beginning of 2021, uh, probably already much better than 2020, and the uh, the second version of Scrum Mastery is out, and uh, LinkedIn is a buzz. So, what else uh, is on your desk for the rest of the year? Um, well, so I, it has been it has been a good start to 2021. It's been a um, a difficult start to 2021 because I've been, in one way, uh, as you say, taking your own medicine, but in the other, in another sense, not. So. When faced with uncertainty and complexity, you, know, you need to run multiple parallel experiments to see what works. So for the, for the first five, four or five months of, of this year, you know, I've been running lots and lots of different experiments. So from, like you said, creating a second edition of Scrum Mastery to creating this community to creating some on-demand e-learning courses, things like that. All sorts of different things that I've been um, doing and channeling my energies in lots of different ways to see what people want, what people need, also what, what brings me joy. Um, because things have changed, uh, there's no denying that, and it's a case of responding to that to a degree, not, not staying in denial and trying to hold on or wait for the old world to come back. It's trying to work out where we are in the new world uh, and shape the new world. So, you know, I've been doing all sorts of different things, and that that running multiple parallel experiments is an example of me living what, what I what practicing what I preach, if you like. But Spreading myself quite thin is where I haven't been. So this this idea of keeping a sustainable pace has been a bit of a challenge for me. It's been a bit of a bit of a, an energy uh, drain, and not having had a holiday for two years is starting to take its toll. So success comes at high price. Um, well, it's it's something that you just yeah you, you can sustainable pace is an interesting one as well, right? Because 
you can be what's sustainable, right? So what's sustainable during a day might be different to what's sustainable during a week, what's sustainable over a month and a year. Um, and it's just about making sure that you're, you're, you know, I get enthusiastic, I get an idea and I start running with it, and, and it's fine because I've got the passion and the energy, and I don't, it's not like I'm getting burnt out or anything. Um, but if you've got multiple plates spinning and you're not really seeing results for a while and you're staying up late and doing uh, talks in different time zones and things, it can be, um, it can quite easily drain your energy without realising it. So you've just got to stay mindful and you know, having some coaching supervision, for example, is a great way of uh, both formal and informal of just, just checking in with yourself. Well, um, thanks, Jeff, for coming today and talking to us. Uh, it's really fascinating to eventually meet somebody who actually moved uh, in a different direction. Usually we see agilists now going into professional coaching and uh, you're like, I was like, you really moved from professional coaching to agile coaching. Uh, and that's fascinating. So uh, thanks for uh, sharing your experience and your thoughts with us today. Yes. And this was uh, Tandem Coaching Academy, Skipping Agile Non-Denominational Podcast. We were your hosts today, Alex Quinn and Sherry Silas. Bye now.